If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Esther chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find Esther chapter 2 on page 410 of the Black ESV Bible there in front of you. There's something of a classic adage that is used by screenwriters and directors that are, is meant to help them make better movies, and that adage is, show, don't tell. The idea is that if you want to portray a character as greedy, it is best to show that character as greedy rather than have two other characters tell us that he is greedy. The upside to doing this is that the opinion that the director or the screenwriter wants us to get of this character is not something that is given to us, but something that we have come to on our own, that we sort of agree with the movie and can continue to accept the viewpoint of the movie. The downside, however, is clear, that if it's too subtle, we're just not going to pick up on it. Uh, We just won't get it. That's why sometimes it's better to tell us what we ought to think, what you want us to think. We like to be told what is right and wrong. It makes it much easier to understand what we are meant to believe and how we are meant to act. Hebrew and Old Testament narrative oftentimes follows this show-don't-tell policy. It's not that Hebrew narrative can't tell us flat out what is good and what is bad. And we're not even talking about necessarily following the law, but following the narrative through the kings or through chronicles or even here in the book of Esther. Sometimes we are told specifically what is good and what is not. For instance, we can read through 2 Samuel and see how everything is going well for King David. He is now king. Saul lies in his rearview mirror. He is given great blessings by God, great promises by God. Everything is going well. And when we come to 2 Samuel 11, we find that he commits adultery and, in the end, murder. We might hesitate on that, given that David was a man after God's own heart, given that David was the king, and ask... Well, is something like that okay? Is it okay that that happens? Is it okay that the king acts in this way? By the time we come to the end of 1 Samuel 11, we read, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, okay, that clarifies. We've been told it was not okay in the sight of God. Other times, though, Hebrew narrative does a much better job of showing instead of just telling us what's going on. One of the best examples of this as we've been debating marriage and things like that in the past 15 or 20 years was the issue of polygamy, especially in the Old Testament, because polygamy is never actually legally denied in the Old Testament. We don't have laws that say you shouldn't have more than one wife. And many people pointed out that, hey, Abraham and Jacob both had multiple wives, and they were held up as great examples of the faith. I remember the answer that was given by Tim Keller, uh, who was really helpful in this. He said, so let's take those examples of Abraham and take the example of Jacob and look at what happens to their lives. When Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham, not only is there strife between Sarah and Hagar, but then there is strife between Sarah and Abraham because Sarah wants to send Hagar and his loved son Ishmael away. It creates nothing but contention and strife the entire way through the narrative. At the end of Genesis 29, the beginning of 30, as Rachel and Leah have been worked for by by Jacob for 14 years, and he takes them both as, as his wives, nothing but strife and contention between them. And Keller finishes by saying along the lines of, no, the Bible never tells us flat out that this is wrong, but the narrative is so terribly clear. 
every time this is engaged in, every time this is taken on, bad things happen. It's never, never the example that we are to follow. In second, or in Esther chapter 2, we are finally introduced to our heroine and our hero in the story. The problem is, in this chapter, we find that they have some, how should we say this, interesting moral choices. They have done things that we are going to look at that we will come to the conclusion, I think very clearly, they ought not to have done. The problem in the book of Esther, though, is that we have neither showing nor telling. The book of Esther never tells us that what Esther does is wrong. It doesn't ever tell us that what Mordecai does is wrong. But it doesn't show us that either. It doesn't show us any sort of natural or theological consequences that come from Esther's actions or from Mordecai's actions. As a matter of fact, we're led to the exact opposite conclusion. If Esther didn't do what she did here, she would not have been in place to provide salvation for the Jewish people in the kingdom of Persia. Does this mean that it was okay? Does this mean that this is a way in which we are supposed to sort of go along with the book of Esther and say that, that when you're in this kind of a situation, it's okay to do this sort of thing? There is a great deal of ambiguity. There's a great deal of confusion here in the second chapter of Esther. So let us think through this moral confusion first by reading it and then simply stewing in it for a bit. So if you would, let us go to Esther chapter 2 and we will read the first 18 verses of this chapter. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the capital, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives and carried away with Jeconiah, son of king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, 
after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except with what Higai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the, first, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is also the word of our God. There is a whole bunch of problem in this text. And while there is a problem with Ahasuerus, we will come back to, we will talk about, we really do want to focus in on the heroine and the hero of this story and the problems and the difficult decisions that they apparently had to make. I think it's important to set the kind of context that they might have been in first before we start to pull any sort of application out of it. The handout that you have and the outline that you have will be that application which will occur here in a minute. Let's, let's run through kind of the text and see the, the difficult moral problems that face them. First, we should understand that there could be a great deal of moral ignorance in both Mordecai's life and in Esther's life. When we read of what the king does here, I think our natural inclination to be repulsed at it is probably the right one. Ahasuerus has spent four years, and the text kind of skips forward, but those four years were spent in Greece. He wanted to take his vast army and pulverize Athens, but instead he has returned his tail tucked firmly between his legs, having been chastised and lost a great deal of money and power in the meantime. He wanted to restore his father's reputation, and all he has done is gained his father's reputation as another Persian king who was unable to take Greece. When he returns, he's very sad. He remembers that even Vashti, who apparently had made him happy at one point in time, was no longer his. And so his underlings come up with a plan, another plan that he apparently ascribes to. Let us go just take a bunch of ladies for you. We'll grab a whole bunch of virgins, and that will make you happy. He says, sure, let's try that. This, again, ought to be, frankly, repulsive to us. This is what we would rightly label today as sex trafficking. They are not asked if they would like to come. The royal assistants are told to go take from the provinces these women. But our moral repulsion is likely not shared by people in this age. 
I'm not saying that it's right, and what I'm about to say, please don't understand me as ever saying that, that what is going on here is okay simply because they were ignorant. Ignorance is not the same thing as justification. But, given that he was a king, and the kings were viewed as all-powerful, if not, in some sense, very, very close to deity, that it was the right of kings to do with their people as they saw fit. It was the right of kings to treat their vassals as property, however they might choose. It's unlikely that people would have even put up much of a fuss about this. They might have viewed it as an unfortunate incident. They might have viewed it as something that was unfortunate for their daughters, but nevertheless, it kind of would have been filed under the what-are-you-going-to-do type list. Life isn't fair. And certainly people in the 5th century B.C. knew that better than us. What's more, some of them might have been happy. Not only would it have possibly been an honor for this to have happened to them, but the women, after their one night with the king even if they were never called back into his presence again, would have lived lives that comparatively would have been cushy and comfortable and easy. This might have been a better situation for them than they would have had out in the Persian plains. Now, given that Esther was clearly raised in Persia, given that she was indeed Jewish, but nevertheless was Persian, was part of the culture, knew the culture well, was raised in the culture, really knew nothing else besides being in that culture, it is likely that she would have thought differently about this than we do. Further, we have pressure on this point because Mordecai's advice was, in effect, his command was, in effect, to live like a Persian. He says, you are not to talk about, you're not to make known your people or your kindred. That has to imply more than just you're not to tell them that you're Jewish. In the next chapter, what we're going to find out is that Jews should have been easily spotted. Haman is going to talk to King Ahasuerus and say, the Jews are people who don't follow your law. They don't do the things that everyone else does. They're, they're easily spottable. We know this even from Daniel's time with Nebuchadnezzar. When we read Daniel, who was like Esther, taken away to a foreign nation, Daniel doesn't eat the food that's placed before him. Daniel says, I have to live differently. Esther is told that that is not how she is to live. This is likely something that she would have been expected to do with ease. After all, Mordecai is not identified as a Jew until he tells people that he's a Jew. That indicates that his life was not vastly different than most of the people around him. He lived like a Persian. Esther lived like a Persian. There's every indication in the text that these are thoroughly Persian people who happen to be Jewish. Mordecai's position seems to be one of the court, as we will find out next week. And both of their names, both of their names, the names that they go by continuously, and Mordecai has never given another name, are Persian, not Hebrew. So there's a good case to be made that they were simply ignorant that this was as wrong as it was. More than that, if you read carefully through the text, you'll find that Vashti has talked about hardly doing anything herself. Everything that happens, happens to her. There are passive verbs everywhere. She is taken, not only into the harem in the first place, but she's also taken before the king. She doesn't go anywhere, but she is taken there. 
The only thing that's really said that she does is that she wins favor in the eyes of all who saw her. But even that is coming on the heels of saying, I'm not going to take anything in with me except what you want. She just, she seems to be an incredibly passive person in this chapter. Things are just happening to her. Well, that doesn't mean that she's in favor of it. There seems to be something of a a cultural momentum, or as we're going to talk about, this stream that moves along in their culture. This is just what we do. It's just how we live. These are just things that happen. And she's just going to go along with it. She's passively going along for the ride, but that means that she is still moving with the culture. We might want to say that Mordecai ought to have known better. Certainly, there were plenty of Jewish scholars who, while not supporting Mordecai, and plenty of Jewish scholars do that, there are plenty of people who look at him and say, man, you've got to do better than that. One says this, Why did Mordecai not risk his life to take her to some deserted place and hide until danger would pass? He should have been killed rather than submit, submit to such an act. Why did Mordecai not keep righteous Esther from idol worship? Why was he not more careful? And then this author turns his, his sights on Esther and says this, She too should by right have tried to commit suicide before allowing herself to have intercourse with Xerxes. Let's be real clear about the kind of thing that Mordecai is not just sanctioning, but commanding Esther to do. She is going to go in and sleep with a Gentile. Sleep with a Gentile that she is not married to. Now, at the same time that this is going on, Ezra is having small but frightening, frighteningly sharp teeth kittens back in the Holy Land because a lot of the Jews had been intermarrying with the nations around them. It's a big deal. Mordecai is, at the very least, sanctioning it passively. Not only is she going to go in with a Gentile, but more than that, He tells her to frankly deny her heritage. Do not let them know that you're a Jew is the equivalent of saying, do not let them know that you are of the people of God, which is frankly tantamount to denying God. Food and dietary laws would have gone along with this. Plenty of people can look at Mordecai and say he should have known better. The question is, honestly, should he have? We know that he came out of a horrible time for Judah, with kings and priests who refused to do what they were placed there to do. The kings were to be the models of faithfulness and justice and truth before their people. And we know that the kings of Judah were anything but that. The priests were to instruct people in the way of the law so that they would know exactly what's going on here. But we know that the priests, too, were absolutely worthless in instruction. We need to at least take this into account. In Matthew 11, Jesus speaks to many of the people who were there, speaking about a city that's further away. He says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done to Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The more you know, the more accountable you are. Those who act without knowledge are judged with more leniency. 
Esther and Mordecai perhaps are caught up with this particular stream. They're caught up with the culture. It's hard for them to be able to understand or to know differently. We should perhaps be lenient when we think through their moral decisions as well. Not only is there moral sort of knowledge, they, they, they lack this, they're ignorant morally, but there's also moral difficulty here. Esther was placed firmly in a catch-22. If we assume that she knew that what she was going to be doing is wrong, she has Mordecai standing there as a clear father figure to her saying, you are not, you are not to go against this. You're not to let them know that you're a Jew. You are to do exactly what they ask you to do. And we might think that these are two completely and totally unequal commands, but given the fact that Mordecai was like her father, it is unlikely that she would have stood up to both the king and her adopted father. Those commands carry incredible weight on her. She would have been stuck in the middle of it. There would have been moral difficulty even if she didn't stand in ignorance. Mordecai would have likewise had a problem. Given what happens again, we'll get to it tomorrow. This is part of the problem in dealing with the book of Esther. It's all tied together. But next week, not tomorrow, I'll read it tomorrow. You should read it tomorrow. But next week, we're going to see that Haman does something that is rather extraordinary. Mordecai is going to upset him something fierce. Mordecai lets it be known that he's a Jew. And so Haman makes this huge leap of logic. I hate Mordecai, let's kill all the Jews. That is, as we say, escalating quickly, right? That's more than just a murderous rage. He wants to destroy every Jew in the world. Now, it could very well have been then that Mordecai, as close as he was to the court, likely knew of anti-Semitism, likely knew of the hatred of the Jews that some people high up in his court, Ahasuerus' court, felt. And so perhaps he is telling Esther to keep it quiet for her own safety and her own good. And we might lament the fact that he didn't make a different decision. We might lament the fact that he didn't do what we might think of as a better choice. But nevertheless, we have to be careful. Put in that same situation, thinking that we might put our daughter's lives on the line, it is easy to say that we would choose for her to go into danger to uphold the faith. I think it is much more difficult to actually do that in practice. However, whether there was moral ignorance, whether there was moral difficulty, There is, I think, without mixing words, moral failure. Even if they were ignorant, there's still sin here. Even if they had difficult situations put before them, there is still sin here. Esther perhaps was carried along by the stream of her culture. Perhaps she did have a difficult decision in front of her. And while she seems very passive, she also doesn't seem terribly reluctant. There's nothing in the text that suggests that. As a matter of fact, the text kind of goes out of its way to suggest that she wasn't terribly reluctant. Mordecai, perhaps he had other options, perhaps he could have acted differently, but regardless of whatever the other choices may or may not have been, there is no doubt that Mordecai's command to Esther promoted Esther's defilement. So what are we going to make of all this? What, what should we take away from this situation? What should we come away with in Esther 2? 
Now, I do want to say something about the nature of this narrative and where we find ourselves. The point of the second chapter of Esther is to move the plot of Esther forward. So, this is here not necessarily for us to debate moral situations and how we would handle them. We ought to understand that. The point of this is to tell how Esther got to her place and who Mordecai is and their relationship to one another. That's the point of the chapter. And we will no doubt talk about that more as we go through the book of Esther. But nevertheless, I think that there are things to be learned here. First, we should be humble. We should be humble. We are not wholly different than Esther and Mordecai. We might know better than them, but let's be very clear. As much as they are sojourners in a foreign land, connected to a heritage that maybe they've forgotten, maybe they know of, connected to a law and to prescriptions that maybe they're knowledgeable about, they nevertheless have to deal with living in this foreign land. We do as well. We have one foot in the kingdom of Christ and we have one foot in the United States of America. It is not always easy to know how we are to walk forward and therefore we ought to be humble. We ought to be humble when we judge other people for how they act and what they do. We ought not to be quick to judge because we often overlook our own culpability in serious matters. Because like Esther and like Mordecai, we could very well be standing in a stream that is taking us in the wholly wrong direction, but because we are part of that stream, we can't see it. Could it be that we are blind to a number of things that we think are okay that are ripe with sin? We should be slow to judge, and we should be quick to remember that we have blind spots in our own thinking. After all, you... You were sitting in a Southern Baptist church. You know why we are called Southern Baptists? Because the men who started our convention, who could write eloquently of the Trinity and could debate the finer points of Christology, could present the gospel in beautiful and eloquent ways, thought it was okay and admirable to enslave men and women and children because they were black. And they thought it was good. They thought that they were doing a favor to them. To think that we can sit in a Southern Baptist church with a heritage that has that gargantuan of a blind spot and to think that we in the cultural stream that we might exist in, don't have blind spots as well, is just foolish. It's just foolish. We might be the kind of people who want to come in and provide excuses for Esther and excuses for Mordecai. And there's some sense in which that's a perfectly normal thing to do. We don't want our heroes to, frankly, be covered with as much sin as I think they're actually covered with here. But... As much as we're prone to do that, we are much more prone to excuse out our own sin, especially when we read Scripture. So be humble when you read it. It is really easy to align yourself with Joseph 
and to think about how you need to persevere and to never align yourself with the 12 murderous brothers or the 10 murderous brothers. It is really easy to align yourself with the prophet Elijah and to think that you too need to be a prophet who speaks truth to power and never think for a minute that you are the feckless and the faithless Ahab. It is really easy to identify yourself as Jesus and to think that you want to be a paradigm of love and righteousness and never think of yourself as a blind Pharisee. So, let's be continually in a state of humility before God, asking that our blind spots be shown to us, thinking that we actually do have blind spots, that we have not arrived, that we have things that we need to correct in our lives, and not things that we are sort of never been introduced to. But there are things that we might think are good and true and wise that are just wrong. At the very least, that is a humble stance to take. Secondly, this should make us hungry. Not for food, although that's not a bad thing. But hungry for righteousness, as Jesus instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We should be those who hunger for righteousness. If we do stand in the stream of the culture, and that stream is not necessarily going in right and good directions, if we stand in a culture, even in evangelicalism, that is going in the wrong directions, we ought to want and be hungry to have that sin pointed out to us for our own sake, to have others give us direction and sight where we have lacked it, because there is no church on earth And then there will not be until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and sets forward perfect knowledge in his very presence. There is no church on earth that has married or has even gotten close to right knowledge and right practice. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy are never put together and are never themselves held up perfectly and without error so long as sinful men and women are at the core of it. And so, because we are members of this world, we will always have sin to put off. There will always be ways of reading Scripture that need to be adjusted and practices that frankly don't align with faith and love. And given, given that we exist in the same sort of cultural momentum and cultural stream, it helps to have people who are outside of that stream talk to us, to tell us where we're wrong. If you only read people who think like you, you're only going to think like you do. You can't prophetically call out people who think identically to you. And you can't be called out by people who think just like you do. You have to be people who read others who don't agree with you. And I'm not saying you have to go find a heretic. You don't have to go find a heretic to do this. There are plenty of gospel-believing Christians in the world and throughout the ages who don't think like us who don't read our books. So long as we only listen to those with whom we already agree, we will just become more and more convinced of our rightness and more and more blind to where we are wrong. So, find others. There are plenty of other cultures. There are plenty of other theologians in those cultures. February is Black History Month. 
How many people in here have honestly read a book of theology by a black theologian? Very few would be my guess. And for those who have read, my guess would be very sparingly. Let me ask why. Why? Is it because we don't think that they have things to offer us? The Puritans kind of nailed it down. It's not simply enough for us to read the Puritans and us to read other Southern Baptists and to think that we have the fullness of biblical revelation given to us. There are other people who have other things to say and to critique in them that we will never know unless we read it. And I'm not telling you this because I've done a whole bunch of it. I'm, I'm woefully ignorant of a lot of black theology. And by a lot, that word a lot is doing a huge amount of heavy lifting there. A huge amount of black theology. Read. Frederick Douglass, pick him up. He's brilliant. Martin Luther King Jr., he's helpful. If you want more modern scholars, there's Jarvis Williams, Esau McCauley. Find their books, read them. They will help you. Will you agree with everything? No, probably not. Probably not. But could it help you see something that you wouldn't have otherwise seen because they stand in a different stream than you? Absolutely. That'll be good for you. Do we think it's okay for Esther and Mordecai to be in sin simply because they're ignorant? Even if they're ignorant, is it okay for that? Is that what we want for ourselves? To be able to stand before the Lord, given all the resources we have, and say, yeah, I, okay, I can see where I was wrong there, but I was ignorant. And frankly, I kept myself ignorant so that I wouldn't be held accountable to it. Let us be hungry for that. And then, what's more, to be hungry not just for our own righteousness, but for other people's righteousness. If we are in a stream that's going astray, and we know that it's going astray, we have every right to be prophetic in our call to promote justice and mercy and love, the good things of God, to that stream. So I talked last week. The church is not to be apolitical. It is not. We are to always support policies and push for lawmakers to do the right things in this world. This is our duty as Christians living in this world. But we need to understand that Democrats are not our enemies and Republicans are not on our side. What we want is we want good policy regardless of who makes it. What we want is we want justice regardless of who gives it. We are always to pray for our leaders regardless of the letter that comes after their name. We must leverage those leaders as much as we can to bring good and equitable laws and justice to our people. To, as we have said, pursue love, justice, and mercy. So that when Democrats do what is right, we will applaud them. When Republicans do what is right, we will applaud them. Because neither is on our side, nor are any of them our enemies. We don't fight against flesh and blood. But we seek to do good. The church has indeed done this and should continue to do it. But again, we don't fight with the power of the world. So we want to be pro-life. 
that's great. Pursue policies and have rhetoric that's pro-life. But let me borrow a phrase from James, at least an idea from James. You call yourself pro-life, that's great. Show me. Show me your pro-life. Show me that you can do more than vote pro-life. You, you want to support marriage. You think that marriage is really important. You think marriage is super important. We've got to fight the cultural... Tr- that's great. We ought to. We ought to uphold biblical marriage because it's really the only kind of marriage there is. Because God is the one who has set the, the standards of what marriage is. That's good. We should. We should put pressure on politicians for that. We should use rhetoric for that. You know what the best thing to do? is to have churches that are filled with godly marriages. To have churches stop winking at divorce and have churches stop overlooking fornication. And to promote these things as right and good and true. Let us be hungry to be made righteous and hungry to promote righteousness in the world. And last, we should be hopeful. It shouldn't make us fret and it shouldn't give us fear, but we should be filled with hope in this. There's a lot to look at in this chapter, and there's a lot to think, well, if, if we are as blind as they are about something, what hope is there? Oh, there's tons of hope. Because Mordecai and Esther of chapter 2 are not the Mordecai and Esther of the end of the book of Esther. Mordecai will eventually stand up for what is good and true and right. Eventually, it will come out that he is a Jew because he can't deny it any longer. And he will find faith and try to tr- build fortitude in Esther to actually not go along with the culture but to stand up to put her own life at risk for what is right and good and true what's more reading something like this is incredibly good for us it is a wonderful wonderful thing to know that some of the heroes that are laid out in scripture like David the adultering murderer are sinful that gives you hope It gives me hope. God is not waiting for perfect instruments to have his will completed. He is not waiting for us to piece our lives together so that he can finally get around to use us. God can use fallible, bent, wicked, morally insufficient instruments to bring about his good and glaringly glorious will. We don't have to have it all pieced together. We don't have to have everything fit together. The reason why is because God has already sent us one who is the hero of all of Scripture who had it all together for us. Jesus has paid the price for our sins. He has accomplished the fullness of God's will and continues to do so as we move forward sitting at the right hand of the will of God, sending his spirit out onto his people so that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to even strive to be perfect. We strive to be faithful. Because God's hero has already won the victory for everything. He has already accomplished what we could never accomplish. So friend, you can be weak. You can be weak. And God can use you. You can be poor, and God can use you. You can be little, and God can use you. Because God has already won the victory in Jesus Christ. And that is true for everyone in here. The wickedness of Esther and Mordecai. The wickedness of you and of me. Jesus Christ has paid for that. So that every single person in here who believe and who trust in the Lord 
can be forgiven for their sins. And through that forgiveness, be remade in his image and be used for his glory, even though you have baggage, even though you have sin that clings so tightly. Even though you have sin that clings so tightly, you don't know it's sin. He can still use you because he has made you clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. The word of God works through the power of the Spirit to make us into that which we were not, but which we were always destined to be. The Esther and the Mordecai we find here are not the Esther and the Mordecai we find at the end of the book. Friends, there is hope, not only that God can use you, but there ought to be hope in our lives that we can become better people. That the righteousness that we long for will be given to us. That he is freely capable and willing and desires to give it to us. It is easy to look at the passage before us, see that there were choices made, and some perhaps out of difficulty, some perhaps out of ignorance, some, if not all, without a doubt, shrouded by sin. But we are not to be content to be the kind of people who wallow in ignorance or in difficulty. We want better things. Hope that God will use broken sticks to draw straight lines. Hope that he might use the weak to shame the strong. That he can even use us to bring the great news of Christ to the world. Friends, trust in his power. Believe in his grace. Listen to his voice. And expect your God to work. Let us pray. Father, while we are thankful that you use sinful, crooked people, we pray for better things for us. We don't want to be sinful. Let us truly desire righteousness for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Let us ask not simply for small things, but for great things from you. Give us both holiness and use us mightily for your glory here on earth. Make us humble that we might listen well, that we might correct our lives, and in doing so, proclaim your truth to the world. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.